coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. Happy weekend. This show is loaded. We've got lots of headlines to cover today. It's like a news dump kind of day. And I know the Supreme Court's doing their thing. We don't even have time to cover the stuff they're going over today as of yet because we've got stuff happening right here in Metro Atlanta. DeKalb District Attorney has backed out of prosecuting some of those Cop City cases. We'll give you some reaction to that at the back end of the show. Let's see. We also have... Oh, how about some election integrity issues? We're going to talk with Susan Greenhall from the organization Free Speech for People. She is their senior advisor on election security. A lot of discussion about the touchscreen versus the paper ballot here in Georgia. Why is the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, staying so doggedly loyal to current touchscreen machines and the software that comes with them when there are increasing concerns that hacking risks are becoming more exponentially possible, especially with the Coffee County Election Office break-in. We'll talk with Susan Greenlaw about that at the back half of the show. That's all very heady stuff, but first up, our first order of business is discussing a Cobb County teacher who is likely to lose her job because of the Divisive Concepts Law passed in 2022, focusing mainly on classroom discussions about race, but also potentially LGBTQ plus issues. She read to her fifth grade honor class a book that caught the ire of a parent, a parent who was also a teacher who went to the administrators and had her put on administrative leave. Her name is Katie Rinderly. She teaches gifted students at Due West Elementary School. She read a book. I've, In fact, I watched the YouTube uh, illustrated reading of it. It's called uh, My Shadow is Purple. Seems completely innocuous to me, but what do I know? I'm not a teacher and I'm also not an attorney, but Craig Goodmark is. Craig is uh, on the phone to represent her and will be representing her, as a matter of fact, in, you know, loftier spots. Anyway, Craig, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Thanks. So has she been informed? Well, I, it's my understanding there's going to be a like a hearing on August 3rd, right? Has she been informed of anything beyond administrative leave? We'll discuss this on August 3rd. She was investigated. Uh, then there was a recommendation for termination made by uh, Human Resources. Wow. The superintendent has recommended her for termination to the board. Uh, she received a letter on June 6th that said, that Cobb County School District intends to terminate your employment. Wow. So I guess that becomes official when she shows up August 3rd to get their verdict? Correct. She gets an opportunity because she has tenure here in Georgia. Uh, she has an opportunity to defend her job uh, in a proceeding that would be in front of the school board itself or what's called a tribunal of the board. Did they elaborate in any way as to what in this book was the line too far crossed? No, and, that, and that's really the difficulty here and the difficulty that's created by these Georgia censorship laws that have been passed recently is that nobody really knows what's divisive. Nobody can define it. Nobody can decipher the statute to tell us if we've gotten to the line or if we've crossed the line. Mm. And in this case, you've got a book that uh, uh, from you know Monday to Thursday would seem benign and positive and appropriate in every way, but somehow on Friday becomes a violation of the law. 
And I'm reading from reporting at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It's my understanding from this story that she, the students actually voted on this book for her to read to the class. One student, not even maybe in, even nefariously, mentions the book to a parent. The parent, also a teacher, uh, is, it, is the teacher also in the school system? Correct, Cobb County school teacher. And then goes and reports this teacher, uh, Miss Miss uh, Rinderly, for reading the book. Is that how it played out? That's correct. The book was purchased at the book fair that was in her school. <laughs> um, it what it wasn't part of uh, her lesson plan uh, for her to choose the book. The lesson plan was for the students to choose the book. The okay. students all um, had a vote. The majority vote was that they read this book, and then she created a exercise based on the book. We're on the phone with Craig Goodmark, an attorney uh, based in uh, Decatur. Do I have that right? Atlanta. Atlanta. Okay, Atlanta, Decatur. Anyway, uh, Craig is representing Katie Rinderly, who is likely to be the first teacher to fall victim to the divisive concepts law signed into law in 2022, all for reading a book, My Shadow is Purple, to fifth graders. No mention of transgenderism, uh, sexuality doesn't come up, and, and no, nothing nefarious. There's not even the first drag queen in the story, and yet Miss Rinderly may lose her job. Craig, do you or have you had access to her personnel file? Has, does she have any other issues that, that, that come up that might lend you to believe that, okay, so this is something that has been simmering and brewing, and this is the straw that broke the camel's back? No, Katie, is she's a... You know, a model teacher. She's an exemplary teacher. Um, she's been teaching for 10 years, and her, her evaluations are sterling. Um, there are standards that evaluate her lessons. Those were high level. Uh, her communications with students were also evaluated at a very high level. Um, this is just a, a, a model teacher for Georgia's public education system. Um, and, you know, Georgia and Cobb County now is, is you know, using these, you know, politics to 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 really chill the speech of teachers, you know, across the state. And really, you, know, you mentioned that this is the first teacher, but but the impact of these laws is statewide. Mm-hmm. Um, teachers are self-censoring. Um, the discussions regarding race, regarding you know these what are considered divisive concepts, uh, are being chilled. Uh, students are losing the opportunity to debate these issues, mm-hmm. to discuss these issues, to evaluate them for themselves, and to critically think. And uh, it's doing a disservice to the public education system in Georgia, and especially to those students. This is also sort of chilling. It's very Handmaid Tales-like. You know, the, uh, the the ladies aren't allowed to speak about certain things or have to be careful what they say around the house governess. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and also, listen, school going to school is not always fun for kids. And doing something that deviates from your standard textbook, which puts them to sleep, is the sort of tool that teachers need to have at their disposal. And now there's this huge pall of doubt as to whether or not a teacher can go off course from time to time to get their kids' attention again. Absolutely. And, and that's really the, the, the impact of the law. And that it derives directly from the statute, which gives us no direction. Mm. The, the definitions are vague. Um, there's no predictability as to what will and will, will not violate this law. And the impact of that is that we're starting to see you know, topics that would have otherwise been discussed now being shied away from. And that, you're right, 
that is a uh, um, you know an injury to Georgia's public school students. So I guess from a legal standpoint, uh, and you are a lawyer, so this is uh, germane to to what you do for a living. Is this a wait and see? What happens on August third before you guys decide how to react? Sure, and I mean wait and see to the to the extent that. She's been recommended for termination. Uh, Cobb County is going to bring forward their evidence as to why they think she should be terminated. Um, they provided us some notice that says it's because of this divisive concepts um, violation or complaint that they got from a parent. And now we, you know, the problem with that is that we we've now allowed the classroom to become this political pawn uh, between communities, and it's it's. Um, it's damaging and it's harmful and it's, and it's a concern that we're having and we're seeing all over the state. So the school board obviously isn't a court of law, but after the fact, if she is terminated, are there legal options then? Is that what you guys are going to pursue? Correct. So she'll have legal options. I think, um, certainly there are, the statute provides the right to appeal. Um, but there are other, other constitutional issues, uh, particularly with regard to the statute that is the underlying basis for these terminations. Um, you know, that these divisive concepts and censorship rule laws that have been passed by the legislature that have given us, you know, these almost chaotic uh, public school um, experiences. Mm. We're on with Craig Goodmark representing Katie Rinderley, who is up to lose her job from the, cool, uh, the Cobb County school system, a fifth grade teacher, for reading a book entitled My Shadow is Purple. Uh, we will include, by the way, a link to the book that is read on YouTube with illustration. I'll have that in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Craig, this isn't really a legal question, but uh, you've obviously spoken with Ms. Rinderley a number of uh, times in recent weeks. How is she handling this? She's doing well. You know, she she's an amazing teacher. She's somebody that has committed... 100% to what it could be one of the hardest jobs <laughs> that yeah. we would ever come across. Uh, she is positive. Uh, she knows that what she did was right for Georgia's public schools, uh, for Georgia's students, for her students. And she understands that this is you know, the reality for, for educators in Georgia. And she's um, ready to, to challenge the reasons that Cobb County School District has given. Has this come up in conversation where she may have mentioned even having a, a shadow of a doubt, a moment to pause, to think before she cracked that book open, to read it to her kids? No. And, that, and again, that, that, that goes back to the, the vagueness of that law. Um, not, one, not one time have I heard her go, oh, I thought maybe I was coming up to the line of what is and what isn't accepted. Um, th- there is no understanding of where that line is because the line is so ambiguous and so subjective to um, to whoever's drawing it. And in Cobb County, uh, they draw it in one place. Uh, in Macon, they might draw it in another. In Atlanta and DeKalb County, certainly they draw it in another. This is going to be interesting to watch how it all plays out because I, I think at the end of the day, public opinion has to come into this process. Cobb County is not a conservative county anymore, although apparently its school board is still maintained by those who have a bit of a more conservative mindset, but also living in a state with a state legislator and governor who enact more draconian conservative laws, while the county itself has flipped to blue, at least dating back to 2016, looking at election cycles. Craig Goodmark, uh, representing Katie Rinderley, the first teacher who may lose her job to the divisive concepts laws passed in 2022. Thanks for your time on The Ron Show today. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Thanks so much. Again, as I mentioned, I'm going to let you be the judge 
If you follow today's show notes at ronshowatl.com, I think you can also link those on uh, the Spotify podcast. You may get the links on some of the other podcasts as well with today's show notes. But again, at ronshowatl.com, for sure, you will have a link to this book's uh, reading with illustration, uh, found a YouTube link. It's super cute. And I'm not being biased when I say that. I'm just saying it's a super cute little reading rocket, uh, read-along, read-aloud uh, book video so that you can discern for yourself the what's the big deal about this that crossed my mind and obviously didn't even phase the teacher, Katie Rinderley, before she read that book to her students. Uh, up next to discuss this more, Jeff Hubbard. Jeff is the president of the Cobb County Association of Educators. We'll get his take on this situation and the ramifications it could have on Rinderley's career and other teachers as well. This is The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show. We are on with Jeff Hubbard, president of the Cobb County Association of Educators. A Cobb County teacher, a fifth grade teacher teaching an honors class at Dewes Elementary School, read an innocuous book entitled My Shadow is Purple. You can Watch a read-along video from Reading Rockets to this book in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Jeff, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. How long ago did you or your association find out about this case? The middle of March, immediately after it happened. Miss uh, Katie Rinderley had been informed how long after reading the book that she was in a big pile of doo-doo? Two days. And so she's been on administrative leave since March, we're understanding, right? Correct. She read the book, child went home, told the parent, who is also a teacher in the system, bought the book. The parent wrote a scathing letter uh, attacking the teacher personally and professionally. And instead of trying to uh, take it through the Cobb County complaint process that we have mm. for divisive topics, controversial issues, etc., she uh, notified the assistant principal, the principal, and the assistant superintendent for elementary uh, schools on that side of the county. Mm -hmm. So it then escalated from there where they did an investigation, and within two days, she was placed on paid administrative leave for, they said, she violated the uh, divisive topics issue mm -hmm. that was passed in House Bill 1084 in 2022. So according to her attorney, there's not much meat on the bone when it comes to the complaints from the school board, at least, as to what line this book crossed. Were there any tidbits, any nuggets, any breadcrumbs in the letter from the parent slash teacher who complained about the reading of the book? I've not been able to see that. I've only been able to hear snippets of, of what Miss Renderly shared with me when we were doing the intake on her situation. Miss mm -hmm. Renderly has taught this particular child for multiple years, mm -hmm. and so they had developed a relationship, and Miss Renderly was stunned at some of the things that the, the parent accused her of being. Long story short, the parent accused her of talking about gender identity and, you know, bringing up subjects that a fifth grader shouldn't know about. And so that was the basis of her complaint, that they had to explain things to their child that the child as a fifth grader should not be hearing. Unfortunately, so because one parent filed the complaint, we have a 10-year teacher who was doing a wonderful job in the classroom from all the notes that the teacher, that the principal was leaving her this year, mm -hmm. went from zero to fired. Wow. 
having reviewed the book, I can only find one situation where I would have thought, okay, this is going to raise somebody's hackles. And it came where an African-American student comes up to the central character in the story. And from then on, the character refers to that student as they, not he or she. Mm -hmm. But a fifth grade brain doesn't think twice about that. Normally not. Um, but you have a situation where, because of the fact people would say that children are becoming more sexualized because of what they see in media and things nowadays, that, that it's possible. But I can remember not handling pronouns well when I was that age, just right. because <laughs> it, was a, it was more of a grammar rule yeah. more than what you called someone in regards to identity. Yeah, I mean, the, the book took five and a half minutes to listen to uh, right. or read. Uh, there wasn't a, an in-depth study or course on he, she, they, or preferred right. pronouns or anything like that. It just kind of rolled right through the story. You, If I weren't so tuned into it, I wouldn't have noticed it myself, I guess, is the point that I'm trying to make. Right. This story, in a nutshell, tells a very nice story about diversity, mm. um, equality, and inclusion, yeah. and how we should respect it. And God the forbid. author... Scott Stewart was telling the tale, the real life tale of his son. Mm. He grew mm. up liking Elsa and Anna and right. princesses and thought, okay, well, I don't go to this side. I don't go to that side. But looking back, you know, 50 years, you had girls who were tomboys. I was thinking that myself. Tomboys. That's not, not even like who grew up to be lesbian, but just tomboys who like playing sports and with cars with their brothers. And we thought nothing about them. They were just friends. They were labeled tomboys. So, you know, the, the, the labeling part, we thought nothing about it back then. Mm -hmm. But this particular parent did severely react to it, took it immediately at the flagpole. And finally, they placed her on, you know, on a paid administrative leave, had the final hearing on May 5th. And then a month later, the superintendent moved to terminate. Mm using language from a bill. And here's, here's the real kick in the rear. Right. This policy and divisive concepts only talks about racism and politics. Mm. Has nothing to do with sexuality. Then when you look at the controversial issues administrative rule that they posted, same thing. There's one little line in there about morals and ethics. Mm -hmm. This book did not teach anything about children go out and become gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, <laughs> oh. you know, didn't talk about any part of the GL, um, LGBTQA community. It was just, you know what? It's okay to be you. Yeah. Heaven whoever, you, whoever you may be, mm. it's okay to be you. And because of that, because somebody objected and this, these, this legislation is coming from far right mm -hmm. political institutions and spreading sadly like wildfire. And what's happening in this case, it has the potential to destroy the career of a 10-year educator who had been getting high marks, had been well-respected, and um, quite honestly, if she gets a termination on her record, her career is done in the state of Georgia. Well, and it can't help to recruit and retain other teachers in that profession either. That's the shame of it. Well, it's, it's, it's chilling. Yeah. It's absolutely chilling because the fact this was a lesson about creative thinking. Mm -hmm. You know what? It's okay to be different. Yeah. You know, I'm a white male. My best friend is a black male. Been, been my best friend for 40 years. We are obviously different. It's okay to celebrate those differences. You know, many of my friends are in the LGBTQ community. It's okay to be different. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about diversity 
you know, equality and inclusion. That's what a lot of these legislative pieces are trying to do. And it's almost like whitewashing us to where if you're not like me, you don't matter. If this continues, you're going to have teachers who are going to be afraid to um, allow students to have lessons on critical thinking, on creative thinking, because they're going to have to be concerned. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I do the wrong thing? And then the, the situation on the books. Kids love book fairs, mm. but now, you know, teachers are going to have to be careful. I can't buy anything from a book fair because it might be wrong. I right. can't read a book from the book fair. And this all came because the system, I didn't vet the books that Scholastic brought to Cobb County to see if they were okay or not. The teacher thought, okay, this is an interesting book. I'll read it. In fact, the children picked the book to read that right. book. We are going to speak up, speak out, and speak for Miss Renderly and her right as an educator through this process that she's undergoing in Cobb County right now. And hopefully the tribunal on August 3rd at the Cobb County School Board will see the ridiculousness of this situation and not accept the superintendent's mandate for termination and return her to her classroom to where she can teach the children that loved her for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Jeff Hubbard, President, Cobb County Association of Educators. Thank you for giving us your point of view in the update. I appreciate that. Uh, I sincerely appreciate that. Thank you for your time. Follow The Ron Show on Twitter at RonShowATL. The Ron Show on America One Radio. One of the stories that hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention of late is election security. And with that coming up in 2024, there's actually a lot of headlines about this just in the state of Georgia. Dominion Voting Systems came away with a big chunk of money from Fox News because Dominion insists that their machines worked and were secure and Fox News sort of carried off a varying narrative. That being said, there is a lawsuit fighting its way through court right now that is pursuing turning Georgia back to paper ballots. And Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger seems to be a little stubborn about making that change. Joining us, Senior Advisor on Election Security to Free Speech for the People, uh, people Susan Greenhall returns. Susan, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me back, Ron. I appreciate that. Did I set this story up right? We, we've got this lawsuit, and there seems to be some concerns about the integrity of future elections, but not past elections. And so there's a premise that perhaps Georgia should look back to paper ballots. That's right. I would make one um, clarification, though, is that the lawsuit um, that Dominion um, won against Fox mm. um, defended them uh, defended them against accusations that the 2020 election had been stolen because right. Dominion had purposefully allowed their system to be hacked. And um, so they were, Fox was making allegations that the 2020 election was stolen with Dominion's complicity. And I think there's a difference that um, the concerns that are being raised now in Georgia are, is not that any election has been stolen, but that the system has significant vulnerabilities and is insufficiently insecure for public governmental elections. So I get why nobody's paying attention to this story. It's multifaceted, multi-level, very complex. Uh, it doesn't have the sizzle of Trump versus Biden necessarily. And in fact, this, this doesn't have a right versus left or blue versus red divide in it, does it? It doesn't, which is it's really strange because there's um, always been a lot of support on both the right and the left for handmarked paper ballots. 
uh, um, back in uh, 2018, 2019, when Georgia was looking to get rid of its um, notoriously insecure uh, kiosk-style touchscreen voting machines, um, polls from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution showed that 55% of people would prefer to mark their paper ballot by hand. 35% said that they wanted to use a touchscreen, and 10% said they didn't know, and um, or they didn't respond. And um, yeah, there and there was pressure coming from both the right and the left for Georgia to move to a hand-marked paper ballot system, which is what is commonly used around most of the country and uh over 70 percent maybe it's Hmm. closer to 80 at this stage um and yet raffensperger insisted on using this extremely expensive touchscreen system which has now proven to have um known vulnerabilities and not only are those vulnerabilities known um and documented by um not just professor halderman who wrote this report that a lot of people are talking about but also by the department of homeland security um so why raffensperger is insisting on this system um it's it's kind of confounding it's curious too uh, you and i are uh, we we can go back far enough to remember 2000 when we had floridian ballot folks holding up paper ballots to to check out hanging chads is, is that is that weighing on raffensperger's mind you think it really should because the system that you know caused the problems in florida was a punch card system that's not used anymore um anywhere um and what the the um the option that's uh, that's readily available to georgia right now is using um, paper ballots that are marked by hand, basically the same as you would get if you're voting absentee. So if you decide to vote absentee, ballot comes in the mail. Um, you use a pen to fill in the little bubbles and you would just do that at the polling location. And then they would be scanned with the exact same equipment that Georgia already has. They would not need to buy any new equipment. Okay. They can use the the same machines that are already available for all the polling locations. Um, they just the, the piece that you would be skipping is using the very expensive um, and vulnerable touchscreen machine, which doesn't record your um, which records your vote in a barcode, and that's what's used to um, count. And that's what's that's what's counted, um, and people can't or QR codes. People can't read QR codes, so that's a, another problem with this system. I was just going to say the, the 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 peace of mind of getting the paper after the fact that shows you a barcode and not what you did. Uh, has to provide some doubt as well, does it not? Um, yeah, because the barcode is what's counted, um, and the what. So you don't know what's recorded in the barcode is correct, right. um, and what is printed in text, um, the it, it, it's essentially meaningless, and people don't um, check them check that anyway. So. Uh, you know, t- studies show that people don't actually look at it. So even if it was both were recorded incorrectly, it's unlikely anybody would notice. We're on with Senior Advisor on Election Security to Free Speech for the People, Susan Greenhall, joining us again. Uh, so how does the Coffee County break-in weigh in on this? Uh, it seems to be the, the item of this conversation that isn't brought up uh, in any media piece that I've seen, but we did have a breach of security at a county elections office. And is is there some tie between that breach and potential vulner- vulnerabilities? Well, it um, 
it doesn't help to know that a bunch of people who have been willing to cross many legal and ethical lines to try to overturn an election now have copies of the election software that's used in Georgia mm. and also know that that system is vulnerable in, uh, in many ways that were documented by um, Department of Homeland Security. Um, but it, it's also significant because the Secretary of State is defending his insistence on continuing to use the vulnerable touchscreen machines for the ballot marking part of the voting process because he's saying um, that we have very strong physical security measures. Nobody can actually execute any of these attacks because no one would have ever able to it would never able to get access to the systems. Um, and that's just falls on its face. We've uh, seen them do it. Yeah. Uh, and we don't, and the, there's been slow walking of the investigation. We don't know exactly. Did it happen in other counties? There's actually um, concerns that this might've, uh, um, there might've been some similar uh, events in another County called Trutland because mm. the election supervisor that permitted the breach in coffee County that permitted all of the Trump allies to march in and access the voting system in Coffee County. After she got fired from Coffee County, she got hired in Trutland County to run their elections. Um, so what was she doing when she had access to that system is something that we need to know. And it's, you know, more than two years later, there needs to be, there really needs to be some serious investigation from both the feds and um, the state level. And do we even know that all of, what is it, 159 counties in Georgia, do we even know if every county in Georgia has the same sort of security camera, uh, equ you know, uh, equipment and capability that we had in Coffee? I mean, Coffee County is a rural county. It's actually, I'm, I'm a little stunned that they even had that sort of security footage. In, in, I've, I've traveled through a lot of counties where uh, I can think of two, for example, Green and Tolliver County between here and Augusta. They shared a high school for decades. So why would I expect either of them or one or the uh, other to have security cameras uh, pointed at entrances and exits to their elections office? Um, I, I, I can't tell you whether they do or not. <laughs> I, I think it's, um, it's worth noting that the election supervisor that came in after the after Misty Hampton, the, the election supervisor mm. that permitted the unauthorized breach, mm. after she was fired, this new guy came in and he wrote a memo to the Secretary of State's office in summer of 2021 documenting se severe security um, uh, uh, gaps in the way the voting machines were being stored and held, including the fact that the um, front plates of the casings had been removed on several of the devices. Oh, my gosh. Yes, this was in 2021, summer of 2021. He wrote this memo to the Secretary of State's office and no investigation ensued. The Secretary of State's office took absolutely zero action in response to that warning from the election director in Coffee County. Um, and so I don't have a that that doesn't give me a lot of confidence in his ability to ensure the physical security of voting systems or that they take any of it very seriously. And let's be clear, uh, a, a county like Coffee, we're, we're talking 43,000 people. This is not likely uh, the, the sort of spot where you can swing a presidential election, maybe even not a gubernatorial election. This sort of alleged chicanery could have something to do with a, a local board seat, a county commission seat, 
board of education. None, nonetheless, there's ev- there's evidence of the potential for some sort of tampering to have happened, and to have something as surreptitious as an overnight break in or a breach in security by some pretty nefarious folks at the highest levels. Again, it just it doesn't tie you to think, well, they're trying to change votes in Coffee County. No, this goes back to election security on the whole, doesn't it? Yes. And and that's an important point people need to understand. Georgia is one of the few states that's called a top down state where, first of all, every county uses the exact same voting system. If you go to a lot of other states, you'll see it's, it's patchwork county by county. They choose their own voting systems and they program them themselves. Georgia uses the exact same system, the exact same software in all of its counties. Mm. And all of those systems are programmed at the Secretary of State's office. So one of the exploits that was uncovered by Dr. Halderman was that um, a corrupted election definition files, which are the programming files that tell the machine that a touch on the screen here means a vote for so-and-so, if those were corrupted with malware, it could spread from the um, actual programming uh, site to wow. the individual BMDs. So there are possibilities for very um, for a uh, a more scaled attack. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that getting the software in Coffee County now gives you um, all the information you need to uh, attack a system in Fulton County. Wow, I mean, this is almost like Luke Skywalker going for the thermal exhaust port at the Death Star, is it not? <laughs> That's a great analogy. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right, Susan Greenhall, Senior Advisor, Election Security for Free Speech for People. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you catching us up on this story. It's an important one. Thanks for the chat. Take care. Okay, we'll put a bow tie on today. We'll put a bow tie on the week. One final segment of the Ron Show returns for you in minutes on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. By the way, if you've got an Echo Dot or an Amazon Echo around, you just say, hey, her name, Alexa. I have to be sneaky about it because she's in the corner of the room I'm recording in. Enable the America One Radio app, and she will. Back after this. Last segment of the Ron Show for the day and the week, and lots of stuff to cover today. We didn't even get to stuff happening with the Supreme Court. Figure you can get the Titan submarine story stuff elsewhere. This is the Ron Show. We are based in Atlanta, Georgia. So Atlanta and Georgia, domestic and sometimes international stories. That's kind of the pecking order. So this is a big local story. For those of you in and around Metro Atlanta, you know the Cop City story is huge. It's actually become a big story nationally and somewhat internationally as well. And Then a shoe drops today that kind of caught a few folks off guard. The DeKalb County District Attorney has withdrawn her office from prosecuting Atlanta Training Center arrest. That's right. The DA's office said law enforcement agencies have had a, quote, difference in prosecutorial philosophy in the last few months. Amanda Lumpkin at Patch reporting uh, this story as it broke. Sherry Boston has removed her office from any current cases relating to the controversial Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, according to a news release issued Friday. The DA's office will still address future cases should there be additional arrests at the future site of the training center near Constitution and Key Roads. The center has come to be known to protesters, obviously, as Cop City. The story continues, Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr's office will now handle prosecution of pending cases for 
related to the center according to the release. All stakeholders, the GBI, Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and CARS office have been notified of Boston's decision. The statement read, My team and I have worked diligently to reach a consensus with the Attorney General's office on charging decisions in these cases. At this point, I have decided it is best that we allow them to move forward with the charges they feel are warranted. Attorney General Chris Carr took to Twitter uh, to say that his office will continue moving forward with the prosecution of, quote, violent acts, using that term, violent acts, surrounding the training center. The tweet read, if you shoot police officers, throw Molotov cocktails at law enforcement, vandalize private homes and businesses, and set fire to police vehicles and offices, you will be held accountable. We will not waver when it comes to keeping Georgians safe and putting a stop to violent crime in our state. You know what you don't hear Attorney General Chris Carr mention, however, the arrests of the three arrested for quote-unquote money laundering in connection with financial crimes at the future public safety training facility. The three who were arrested in May were part of the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, you'll remember, and you know, I found this story, I can't believe this didn't get more f- smoke. The Register.com reporting this back on uh, June 6th. Jessica Lyons-Hardcastle reporting here. Um, police cuffed 39-year-old Marlon Scott Couts and 42-year-old Adele McLean, both of Atlanta, Georgia, and 30-year-old Savannah Patterson of Savannah, charged him with money laundering and charity fraud at the end of May. The three, as board members of the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, help arrange legal advice, bail funds, and other support for those who oppose the southern U.S. state's cop city and run into trouble with authorities. But get this, it's the police use of PayPal records that's drawing fire. So let me hone in on the article where that's covered. The evidence, according to Patterson's arrest warrant, included reimbursements from the Network for Strong Communities, a state-registered nonprofit, for expenses including gasoline, forest cleanup, totes, COVID rapid tests, media, yard signs, and other miscellaneous expenses. These expenses totaled nearly $7,000 over about two years. The police somehow obtained and used PayPal records as evidence of those reimbursements. The cops suspect charitable donations to the Network for Strong Communities were passed to Couts, uh, etc., and so on, who then used the cash as board members of the Atlanta Solidarity Fund to support those protesting against Cop City. Those protesters included the Defend the Atlanta Forest group, which Homeland Security considers violent domestic extremists, according to the cops, anyway. You'll remember it was days later that the Department of Homeland Security said, um, we didn't give anybody that designation. Why are you using it? I will share this piece at theregister.com in today's show notes as well at ronshowatl.com. Today's show notes are going to be packed, y'all. Uh, I love the subheadline for this, by the way. Nearly anything can look like money laundering if you squint hard enough. You know what? That's one reason why I, I'm pretty specific. Well, I try to be somewhat specific when I'm sending money via Venmo or PayPal or Cash App. I like it. Uh, when I'm at the concession stand for the softball league, it's concessions. It's definitely concessions. I don't know that lady. I don't know what she's doing with the money. I just know I'm buying concessions and that's where my money goes. Okay, I'm doing a little bit of dot connecting, a little speculating as to why the DeKalb District Attorney has removed her office from prosecuting cases just like the Atlanta Solidarity Fund 3 and other cases that predate that with the GBI and the State Attorney General. But ever since those three were arrested, there's been a lot of discord 
within law enforcement and within the judicial community that's all collaborating uh, to facilitate the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center since those arrests. I mean, when Department of Homeland Security says, um, you guys are using language and citing us with language that we haven't even codified, that's a huge gaffe. This is another one of those scenarios where the narrative, if the, if you're keeping score of who is winning the narrative game, this is an, an, another score for the forest defenders. That, another big story we have covered today. Let's see what else. The Supreme Court sided with Joe Biden. Is this the same 6-3 conservative court? Anyway, they sided with Joe Biden versus Texas and Louisiana, two states that had sued after the Biden administration told immigration agents to focus on deporting undocumented immigrants who are convicted of felonies or pose a risk to public safety. The Supreme Court said that the states didn't have any standing to sue the Biden administration over that. And this was an 8-1 decision. In sum, the states have brought an extraordinarily unusual lawsuit, Brett Kavanaugh wrote for the majority. They want a federal court to order the executive branch to alter its arrest policies so as to make more arrests. Federal courts have not traditionally entertained that kind of lawsuit. Indeed, the states cite no precedent for a lawsuit like this. Oh, look at here. Justice Samuel Alito, he's not been on the news much this week, has he? The lone dissenter. To give you a little bit of a background on this, uh, the case is Texas v. Biden. It reached the Supreme Court after Texas and Louisiana sued the administration in 2021 spring for changing immigration enforcement priorities. The Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, had issued a memorandum instructing immigration agents to target undocumented immigrants who have been convicted of felonies or pose a risk to public safety. Now, the states argued that Mayorkas' memo was illegal, and a district judge by the name of Drew Tipton, who was a Trump appointee in Corpus Christi, ruled in the state's favor. The Biden administration appealed the decision, and it hit the high court, was argued back in November of last year. By the way, as an aside, speaking of immigration, I have to, it's tip of the cap. Uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom went on Sean Hannity earlier this week, and I share an excellent thread and a summation uh, giving praise to Gavin on how, first of all, going on Sean Hannity and handling Sean and the line of questioning and the hostile line of questioning that it was with not only grace, but with some precision. It was, re- it was really a, a work of art. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say it's, it's a shame that Joe Biden's running for re-election. I think I, I've said many times before, I kind of wish he had been the one-term guy, full guns of blaring, blaze of glory, go for it all, shoot for the moon, and then dare people to run against it. That would have been my preference. And I'm sitting here looking at the 2024 slate thinking, man, now Gavin Newsom, whew, would have been a rock star. He, re- You've just got to see this. I share this thread, by the way, at Ron Show ATL on Twitter. You can see it for yourself. Uh, so I want to thank all of today's guests. So many that we have to thank today. I mean, we normally don't have one, three, four guests a week, and today we had three in some total and almost a fourth. Uh, Craig Goodmark, representing the Cobb County teacher who faces losing her job over reading a book to fifth graders. An innocuous book at that. Uh, Jeff Hubbard as well with the Cobb County 
Association of Educators. And I want to thank Susan Greenlaw as well for joining me to talk about election security concerns. She with the organization Free Speech for People, the senior advisor on election security for them. So that'll do it for the Ron Show for the day and for the week. Back here Monday, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app or at AmericaOneRadio.com. The app, by the way, downloadable on your Google Play or Apple iTunes market, or you can listen to the show wherever you podcast. Have a great one.